Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Drawing from his extensive experience in assisting with cases of demonic oppression and possession in the Exorcism Files, True Stories of Demonic Possession, Adam Bly presents readers with enlightening true stories and traces their causes. Whether people provided a gateway through Ouija boards, tarot cards, Reiki, yoga or martial arts, Bly reports from first-hand observation how they were lured into the occult. Bly also recounts shocking cases of participation in covens and cults under the guise of knowledge, empowerment and liberation. This is sometimes accompanied by crimes and hauntings, which Bly also documents. Bly sets out to demonstrate in this new book that there is a supernatural enemy in this world who is trying to destroy us. And Adam Bly is my guest coming up. I've heard the possessed often gain supernatural strength yeah. during the experience, and they have to mm-hmm. be restrained. Yeah, not, not all cases. Some are uh, obedient to the exorcist and they stay still, but some are very physical. That was Adam Bly there. He's a layman Roman Catholic and a church decreed expert in religious demonology and exorcism for the Diocese of Pittsburgh, and he is my guest coming up in a wee moment. I hope you're all well. We have a bone-chilling interview coming up with Adam Bly. He had me checking my pulse, and I was on the edge of my seat some of the time. Before we get to that interview, I want to remind you of a great new top-ranked podcast on all things money and markets. It's called Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. Episode 13, which just was released, looks at what is happening at the banks with earnings just out, the banks large and small, and you may be surprised at how they really make their money these days. It's all in the latest episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, which also takes a look in the latest episode at the sad tragedy in the Ukraine. And on a different note, we'll talk about Elon Musk. Odeon Capital Conversations is available on Apple, Spotify, and on all the good platforms. And it is hosted by yours truly. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Adam Bly. He is a church-decreed expert in religious demonology and exorcisms with a vast amount of first-hand information on the dark side. 
and he has a new book coming out, The Exorcism Files, True Stories of Demonic Possession. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Welcome, Adam Bly, to my show. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. You know, I've interviewed uh, a few people who have dealt with the demonic like you are, and you're going to tell us about in a moment. And I've found their experiences and what they recall and what they do fascinating, frightening. And and, and to be honest, I, I tremble a little bit at some of the stories. I interviewed Monsignor Stephen J. Rossetti, um, who wrote the bestseller Diary of an American Exorcist. And of course, Dan Burke, who didn't write specifically on the demonic, but had pretty dark experiences as a young man and he mentioned that to me in an interview and he, he's an author as well uh, great people you're really close to this whole area you're a layman a church decreed expert in religious demonology and exorcism for the diocese of pittsburgh you have also served as an expert in these areas in training priests deacons and laity in many other dioceses, and you are a member of the International Association of Exorcists, which is a Vatican-recognized private association of the Christian faithful based in Rome. And of course, you have a new book coming out in September, The Exorcism Files, True Stories of Demonic Possession, and that's out Mm -hmm. on paperback. The publisher is Sophia Institute press and also i guess under the imprimatur of crisis publications Uh, tell us about yourself well um i started this kind of journey in graduate school in adult clinical psychology i was doing um, brainwave research and learning to be a clinician and diagnosing things and treating mental illness and um, that was back in around 2005 2004 And the paranormal craze was starting back then. It wasn't popular. There weren't a a ton of TV shows, uh, but there was just that one back that started. And so I was um, having done, having had done research in hypnosis and seen that you can induce hallucinations in a healthy person with no mental illness through hypnosis, if they're hypnotizable. um, I was curious whether any of these claims of ghosts and these strange experiences were real or if they were an artifact of mental illness or the brain. Um, And so I sought out opportunities to actually talk with these people myself, having some experience in in diagnosing things and seeing a lot of different types of mental illness. And so that led to consulting on a case for this diocese, the Pittsburgh diocese, and then meeting specialist clergy and just a, a cascade of doors kept opening very unusual for a layperson, but over these 15 years now, I've you know been teaching at national conferences. I've been at uh, many hundreds of solemn exorcisms of people. Seem to have a, a knack for coaching priests through that and a knack for teaching. And so, um, in spite of now, we went from you know maybe 20 or 30 exorcists back in those days in the United States, and now um, you know a few hundred have been trained at least. Uh, but here I am still working, you know, now I'm working full time for the church, doing this, helping to train still uh, seems like God must want me to be doing it because it's still going. Uh, I'm also doing a, a little bit of other work with the church. I'm, I'm in Canon Law School, wrapping that degree up next year, hopefully. So trying to stay intellectually awake and, and stimulated as life goes on. 
I'm intrigued by how you got drawn into this. I understand you're a mental health professional then, a degree in psychology or psychiatry or one of those? Yeah, so I have a, a master's in adult clinical psychology, and I was all but dissertation for the doctorate. It was actually a member of my committee had an issue with this work I was doing with the church um, that made it impossible for me to defend my dissertation. Wow, that's incredible. They didn't think your assertions or your citations or what you were claiming were legitimate or didn't fit with um, your thesis. Something happened, obviously. Um, no, it's just the opposite, John. Actually, um, they very much believe in it. And they said that I had their dream. They, they were a seminarian back in the 70s. Uh, one of their friends stayed in the seminary. They withdrew. They became a psychologist. Their friend actually became an exorcist. And so one of their dreams in life was to do psyche vows for the church for possession cases. And that was something I was starting to do in those days. You were ready to get your doctorate, but there was something. Why was it stopped? I guess I'm trying to understand fully. I don't know. He, it seemed that he didn't like the fact that I was doing what he was denied in life. I see. Yeah, so it might have been a personal thing or mm -hmm. professional thing. We might never know. But so, so you got drawn into this. Was it a, just fascination or curiosity? And what what drew you into it? Well, I mean, like everybody, John, I had had a, some experiences in life. A few, um, you know, kind of waking dreams as I would wake up as a child that I always wondered about. Most people have a few moments in life they've always wondered what was that. Um, so I'd had enough, you know, a few odd experiences that I always wondered about. And then as I learned about the brain in my research, I saw how powerful uh, suggestion can be and, and how much the brain can create reality. Um, so when, when this came along, I guess it was, it was intellectual curiosity mm. because I saw that there was a, a quickly budding fascination in the public for this question of, of spirits and odd experiences and, and the reality of the spiritual world. You know, we, we've kind of become less religious, um, but we've become fascinated with the paranormal in our culture. So, you know, these things all kind of came together for me. And I was in a, a little bit of a unique situation where I got access to talk to some of these people and then you know, was consulting and then bumped into some exorcists that have become very good friends. And so I was basically curious in the beginning. Um, and then I think through Providence fell into some unique opportunities. You brought up something there about the um, drop off, the decline in religion in our society. And yet we have this obsession, our growing obsession with the paranormal. You just see it in our culture, in the movies mm -hmm. that get screened on TV shows on the network and the literature. Where does all that come from? I, I mean, my thought, John, and I'm open to other ideas, but I think we have a, a built-in innate desire for the spiritual life, for spiritual experiences. At the very least, given that we have the gift of consciousness and we can contemplate the future and we're not just living on instinct, we contemplate mortality. You know, our, our parents die and we wonder about that or we, we see wars on TV. We wonder, we wonder about our own death and what that means and what might be there. So we kind of have a vested, um, we have a stake in this, you know, yeah. given that we're all mortal. So I, I think that's part of it. I think the, the deeper 
reason is that for me, at least, it's turned out to be real, the spiritual world, very concretely real. And I think God places that need for that return to God in our hearts. And so I think that's what's really driving it, but at least on a superficial level. I think we're curious about death. We're curious about whether there's an afterlife. I've heard it said, and I've seen it reported, that there's been a surge in the number of trained exorcists in America, and I presume worldwide. Um, Is that because there is more diabolical possession and more demonic activity in our world today? I think it's I think it's likely that that's part of it. So if you look at the history of the church in the world, you tend to see the most activity with exorcism in the first 50 to 100 years when Christianity first entered a new culture. And so basically, from at least from a Christian perspective, um, the demons had free reign to seduce people and trick them into worshiping them in various ways. Christianity comes in and pushes that out. And so you see a flurry of exorcism in that transition time, and then it dies down. And I think what we're seeing in our culture is that the wave of Christianity and religion in general is rolling back. And so we're seeing the reverse of that. The demons now have more freedom to operate. And not only do they have more freedom to operate because we no longer teach our children what's dangerous and what's to be avoided, we actually are now celebrating the things that Christianity would say we need to avoid. And so there's kind of a confluence of factors there um, that are leading to more problems. Well, this is the age of relativism, right? I mean, anything goes with a lot of people. So if it's black, it's white, try everything, experiment anything, be open-minded, this kind of a notion. And so that's into our culture. Over 15 years, you've worked and trained in the exorcism ministry. You have witnessed or experienced a number of miracles. You have been appointed to investigate by the church. Tell us about that. Well, um, Eucharistic miracles, you know, I personally experienced one Eucharistic miracle, and that for me, at least, that was very concrete. You know, it was a very real experience. Um, Stigmata cases, I've investigated two of those, and and those are very um, interesting, and and, uh, when they're real, very powerful kind of experiences, even even to witness them, let alone experience them. You know, from what I've seen, it has a tremendous impact on a person. Uh, I have seen and met people that have had genuine, you know, visions that seem to actually be real as opposed to imagination Um, healings. So um, I have watched somebody be on the very verge of having surgery for the cancer that's been identified. It's been genetically typed. Um, The final test before the surgery for them to go in and remove the tumor, which was seen on MRI, samples were taken. um, And then after prayer for healing with relics, everything was gone. They they did a final check before the surgery and said, well, there's nothing there. And so they canceled the surgery. Um, That's just one example. I've seen a number of healings and healings are the most common miracles that that you hear about. Um, Yeah. So a few of those. Are there a lot of miracles happening in the world today that we don't sort of widely read about? Yes, um, there are. A lot of them are are not promoted. There's not really a, a platform to promote them. And a lot of people that experience miracles aren't necessarily interested in, in promoting that yeah. or, or seeking attention 
for those miracles, because a lot of people that experience miracles uh, understand that they're from God and of God and, and pointing to yourself as somebody who experienced them. Um, unless you have a really good reason to do that, if there's some value in doing that. So a lot of people kind of eschew that kind of attention. Do miracles occur to people who are typically religious, spiritual? Can they happen to other people besides those groups? I mean, that's, that's a, you'd have to ask God for the full answer to that. But my sense of it is that God is merciful and loving to everybody. He's not just merciful and loving to, to people that are attending to him and responding to him. He, he's drawing everybody to himself. So like, for instance, exorcism, something I've had a lot of experience with. A number of the gospel accounts that Jesus is, of Jesus' miracles were exorcisms. They're considered miracles. And the church doesn't only pray with people that are Christian or Catholic Christian or even baptized. Um, exorcists will work with anybody, atheists, Satanists, witches, uh, from any religion in the world. And, and there's many places in the world where cases are brought to the church. Um, and I've never seen somebody not delivered or not helped by God as if, oh, you're an atheist. Well, these prayers won't work for you. That miracle won't be given to you. It's it's as present for them as anybody else. I mean, the word I keep hearing of people, you've got to have faith. If you're anyway skeptical, uh, the chances may diminish that you will uh, have a miracle. Well, maybe, maybe not, because God often gives miracles as a sign to stir up a person and draw them to himself. And so miracles, I think, are often given to people that aren't moving toward God. You know, the signs that Jesus did, he said these are signs for the people in order to wake them up to the fact that God is present. So I don't think they're reserved as like a reward for the person necessarily who's very religious. In fact, a lot of the a lot of healings and a number of the exorcistic miracles I've seen of people being freed are people that are very far from God. Mm -hmm. You know, these are people that have kind of not always, but very often have gone down the road of embracing the demonic, embracing the occult. And turning away from God very actively and sometimes aggressively um, denigrating God or, or attacking God and blaming God, pushing God away. And yet these people, when they're in desperate need, they're saved, you know, through these prayers. Yeah, it's, they, they grow in faith from the miracle as opposed to requiring the faith in order to, to earn it in some way, because no grace is really earned, you know, uh, at least from a Christian perspective, none of us deserve or have a right to say, you know, I demand this because it's, it's my right. So it turned our lives around. It sounds like uh, you would it, imagine that to be the case. Yeah, yeah. And what I see, like, we don't proselytize or, you know, encourage people to convert or say, oh, you really should think about being Christian or Catholic Christian. Um, but what I see over time is the person spontaneously feels that presence of God and the efficacy of those prayers. Mm -hmm. And they, they on, the, on their own will tell us that they're drawn to the Eucharist, they're drawn to God, they're feeling that presence of God and that love. And so on their own, almost always, they end up pursuing their own relationship with, with God through that perspective. So you've trained exorcists, I understand, and you've participated in exorcisms. Tell us about that. I mean, people of no faith and all faiths are fascinated by it. We, we think of Hollywood, of course, the exorcist, and we don't know whether that's all grossly exaggerated, but I'm told that actually it's quite near to the truth. I mean, I would say it's exaggerated. Hmm. There are 
rare cases, the really intense, like, you know, 11 out of 10 kind of cases when maybe you're dealing with Satan himself, um, really, you know, high stakes cases that you will see something like levitation. Mm -hmm. But most very experienced exorcists I know would say maybe one in 200 cases you might you might see levitation. It's going to be a rare thing. Now, that being said, I know a number of people that have seen it. So, you know, that movie makes it seem like every possible phenomenon is happening in every case. And, and that's, that's not true. And heads don't spin around, though I've seen bones dislocate and the body bend in, in strange ways. It, it doesn't seem like it should. Um, you know, some vomiting, but not projectile vomiting, like in the movie. Um, I've not yet seen levitation myself. The occult and hidden knowledge is very common. Knowledge of all languages is yeah, one I've of the sides of possession. Yeah, that's very real. Latin and Greek and so on. All of them. Um, we've had them speak in, in Icelandic in a dialect from 600 years ago. Um, we had a the example I always use from an early you you witnessed that Adam they they actually that spirit was mute and it wrote out the sentences on paper and I luckily had a friend in Iceland who I sent a photo of that to to translate it for me but the grammar was basically from 600 years ago wow and is that paper still intact um i mean this was a few years ago it may or may not be okay it's an interesting exhibit if you will and, and I mean, just as a side thing, I, I, they're just nails, but um, in terms of exhibits, like we had a case where um, the person in the possessed state during the exorcism kept spitting nails at the priest and at the icons um, that were near them. And this happened at every session. And so at the end of every day of praying with that person, there'd be 30 or 40 nails on the floor, um, mostly small. Um, so you know, and it, it's not like they had cheeked them or were holding them under their tongue. I mean, these are produced over a number of hours um, repeatedly, pating, pating, pating. Um, and eventually I kept some of them just because somebody actually said, you ought to just keep a handful and leave them in the archive as here's a bunch of nails that Satan spit out at a priest. Yeah. Just because maybe that'll be useful to somebody at some point to, to realize it's real. Why the nails? It's hard to understand that. You know, it's, I don't know why they do that, but like over in Rome, the old guys in Rome that have like 40 years under their belt, the old exorcists, they actually, we've, they showed us photos of them at, our, at the meetings over there. They'll have wooden boxes filled with nails, hinges, razor blades. Um, for whatever reason, this happens on a regular basis. I don't see it much here in the States, but apparently there it's very common. That's that's extraordinary. Is it a draining experience being present at an exorcism? No. During the actual exorcisms, you actually feel very alert and awake and focused, and you're given the energy to persevere through that. So even if you're gently restraining the person from attacking people and attacking you, where you're going to be, you know, physically tired from wrestling around for hours, even there you don't feel much of it but when the day is over and you're walking to your car in the parking lot that's when it hits you and, and you feel like you want to fall over to protect her home and family in a disaster karen was willing to wade through water mud and insurance paperwork yeah i can do this 
You go, Karen. By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Adam Bly. He is a church decreed expert in religious demonology and exorcisms with a vast amount of first-hand information on the dark side. And he has a new book coming out, The Exorcism Files, True Stories of Demonic Possession. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I've heard the possessed often... um, gain supernatural strength yeah during the experience and they have to mm-hmm. be restrained yeah not not all cases some are uh, obedient to the exorcist and they stay still uh for the most part but some are very physical mm. and and it's um it's hard to to convey to you but um for whatever reason, the majority of, of these cases are female so if you imagine a middle-aged woman not very large or, or, you know, coming from a, a life of manual labor, just kind of a slight, regular, middle-aged female being, I mean, the strength is like iron. Um, and I'm, I'm a man who's a little over 6'2 and north of 220 pounds, reasonably strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen cases where it takes five men just to keep the person in, in place. Um, you know, we've seen it. We saw a woman throw a man who makes me feel small mm-hmm. with one arm, threw him across the room hard enough that he was airborne. Oh, so, I mean, gosh. that's not, it's not always, um, yeah. but when it happens, it's pretty impressive. And, and it's beyond the adrenaline rush where you would say like, Oh, you know, for a moment you have that strength, like the woman who lifts the car off of her child kind of thing. But this goes on for hours, you know, three or four hours later, they're, they're not slowing down at all. And my, you know, my muscles are quivering, wanting to give out. And yeah, they don't slow down at all. And then when the person comes back to their senses at the end, they're just sitting there like, why is everybody so tired? And they feel fine. They don't feel fatigue in their body. They haven't realized what was occurring. No, usually they're blacked out to them. They remember the prayers beginning. And then the next thing they know, they're sitting there and it's three hours later. I'm sure some people will ask, oh, gosh, they have a mental illness, might explain more of this. This is not demons. This is, they have a a vivid imagination. They're having psychotic episodes. They may be taking bad drugs. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and that's what I thought, too, at the beginning. And I was trained as a mental health professional. I was, you know, trained in diagnosis and I was studying the brain. But here's the thing, John. The signs of possession the church has figured out over the centuries and requires at least some of them be present, knowing all languages. So I uh, started to mention earlier, early case, we had a woman raised on a farm with a high school education here in Pennsylvania. Um, didn't know any other languages than English. And there's nothing wrong with being raised on a farm and having yeah. a high school education. I'm just saying for context, um, there was a number of priests there at one of the sessions, and she was interrogated in English, French, Latin, Lithuanian, and German, and properly responded to all the languages. Um, I had a case about a year and a half ago, another woman here in Pennsylvania, she was being seen in an emergency room, and one of the police officers was Korean, um, American Korean, but spoke Korean uh, at home and so knew the language well. Um, 
she was speaking to him and, and he thought she was fluent in Korean, but it was actually the demon had taken over and was and she doesn't know anything about Korean um, at all. So my point is that uh, Tourette's, epilepsy, schizophrenia, they don't make you suddenly fluent in all languages. Yeah. That's, that's not part of mental illness, um, including ancient languages that are so obscure that you have to find, I've, I've received, um, it'll sound goofy to you, but I received a text because these things do text. They're not stupid. I've they, heard this from Father uh, Rossetti too, that demon's yeah. text. I, I, you know, we wrote, I wrote about that and it was published and some people laughed it off, but that's what he claims. And he, and I asked him repeatedly and I try to figure out ways, but you know, he left me convinced that something is going on that's bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not stupid creatures, right? So that's just a technology that we use. They've observed it since its inception. They're not dumb. They know how to, to type and use languages. So, But anyway, my example was a language example where the demon had switched to the Greek alphabet on the iPhone and sent me a text in Greek. Um, this person is a Pittsburgher. They don't, they're not an ancient language scholar. I had to find uh, I had an Orthodox priest friend who knew a professor of ancient languages. So I sent the screenshot to them. They sent it to their professor friend and got the translation. And one of the words at the end of it was a curse word that you would not find in a Greek online alphabet because it was such a, a very, you know, serious yeah. curse word. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, languages, knowing secrets and hidden things. So schizophrenia doesn't make you suddenly know Adam's secret sins that happened five years ago that nobody else yeah. was there or, or other secrets about the people in the room detecting the holy. So if you line up 10 bottles of water and one of them has been blessed by the priest in the other room out of sight, they can tell you hundred percent of the time, which one of them's blessed and which ones are not. They can tell you the name of the saint whose relic is in your pocket that you haven't mentioned to anybody. So yeah, these, these are some of the signs and mental illness doesn't account for that. Sure, mental illness can account for rolling around on the floor and growling, but the church has figured out a long time ago that most cases are mental illness. And so the bar is, is pretty high on what's possession. You mentioned relics and holy water. Monsignor Rossetti mentioned that people should keep their homes safe, blessed, relics, holy water, say the rosary. He said that's a great way to keep the demons away. The main thing is don't violate the first commandment. So the first commandment is love God with your whole heart, your whole being, everything, put God first in your life. Mm -hmm. And so when we, when we turn to these other spirits and we ask them for guidance, comfort, power in some form, and that's what ghost hunting is, um, we're telling God, I don't trust you. I want my confirmation of the spiritual life from this other spirit, from this Ouija board, from this psychic, from this pendulum, whatever it might be, whatever occult practice. You're saying to God, I'm not going to wait on you. I'm not going to trust your Bible. Um, I'm going to get my answers from this other spirit. So you break your friendship with God and you start a friendship with this spirit. And basically, you know, nine times out of 10, the possession cases start with the violation of the first commandment. Yes, you want your home blessed, all of that for sure. But if you're playing with the Ouija board in the basement, it's not going to matter how blessed the house is. I'm looking at some uh, interesting questions uh, I wrote down here. How dabbling in the occult opens the door to evil. You just walk me through some of that. Mm -hmm. Why the devil most intently attacks 
priestly and religious vocations. That would mm-hmm. seem very ironic, very strange, and very odd. Well, I mean, if we go back to what we were saying, that the culture is, is moving away from believing in God and believing in the Judeo-Christian foundation that, that ran through the country to a large extent, the people that are equipped to educate and form and then also pray against the devil, you know, to educate the people, to form the people and to pray against the devil effectively are the priests and the religious are the professional prayers. And so it makes sense strategically, you take out the people that are the most threatening of an enemy to you first. So if there's no priests, there's no exorcists. And if there's no bishops, there's no exorcists. Now, I'm not saying that only people with a vocation get possessed, far from it. The devil's interested in all souls, but he seems to be particularly interested if he sees some kind of hint that there's a vocation in a person's life early on. And he has told us this directly during exorcisms. When he sees even in in childhood that there's a hint that God has given this person a vocation, he'll deploy a lot of effort and a lot of energy to tripping them up and derailing that vocation during their life. And if they fall for those overtures um, and they open the door to it, he'll possess them to try to make absolutely sure that they'll never follow through with that vocation. So we've, it's not every, every case, but many cases are that, are that way. So you have come across cases with those situations, somebody who may have had a vocation or was in a seminary and was tripped up by... Not in a, not in a seminary. Somebody who even as a child or a teen had a, a, a very strong sense that they had that vocation, they wanted to live that life, mm-hmm. but they never even made it to seminary. Mm. They, they get derailed by these situations that seem to be orchestrated around them and then eventually fall into a situation where they're possessed. So a pretty bad situation. Mm-hmm. There are different hierarchies of uh, demons, as I understand it, right? I mean, it's just a whole gallery out there, and then there's the evil one, Satan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, there's nine choirs of angels from a Christian perspective. Um, from a Catholic Christian perspective, most church fathers would say the taxonomy is there's nine choirs, seraphim at the highest rank, the ones directly before God, all the way down to angel, which are the ones that are actually interacting with this physical world. And so those are the messengers that that people actually encounter. The exception there is Michael, who like prepared the children at Fatima, and Michael is a seraph. So at the beginning of creation, when the angels were made, they were given free will, and the choice whether to do their job or not. And a third of them said no. Some fell from all choirs, and therefore in hell you have nine ranks of demons. You've got Satan. And then what I, what I do to keep it simple is I kind of break it down into thirds. So you've got Satan, who's the general. He's the boss. Then you've got basically under him you have these um, you know one-star generals. These are like the th- the demons that you would see in the Old Testament, the Canaanite gods that were being worshipped, these proper name demons that are well-known in, in, in Scripture. Then you have officers in the middle tier, and then you have foot soldiers at the bottom. And so we encounter basically three types of demons. You've got these knuckleheads that aren't very bright. They're very aggressive. They talk a lot. They're super annoying. Those are the lower rank. They're more animal-like. 
Then you've got the middle tier. They have proper names. Like the lower tier, if you say, what's your name? They'll say, I'm rage, I'm murder, I'm suicide. They'll give you their function as opposed to a proper name. The middle tier will have a proper name, but it's not a name you've heard of. They're kind of the officers. And then typically at the end of the case, you'll get the one-star general who's in charge of that case. And that'll be somebody you've heard of, either in culture or in the Bible. And then only if Satan cares enough to fight personally for the case, will he then come when that one's cast out. And that's very rare so far in my life. So there are key signs of the diabolical, right? I mean, you've written about that. When you look around you, you know, at society and individuals, could you identify this is a diabolical community or that's that person might have problems um, with evil and the devil? It's a little bit tricky, John. And and I try to be careful about jumping to judgments about people's from superficial signs. That being said, there are some people that are directly involved in, in demon worship, things called goetic magic. It's kind of black magic that, that is honest about it and says, I'm trying to call demons to cut deals with them. Yeah. And some of these people will use the symbols that come from that magical system. They'll talk about people like Aleister Crowley and his books. They'll have those type of tattoos or satanic tattoos on their throat where it's, it's pretty, they're broadcasting it pretty clearly what they're into. And it's, and it's not just a goth kid wearing dark clothes. And I'm not judging those people. In fact, those are the people we need to pray for the most. I'm not saying to, to give up on them or castigate them in any way, but they've been seduced into this stuff. And, and those, by the way, are some of the cases we see, but they typically come at the end of their life. So they go along with the demon. They're an obedient slave to the demon their whole life. And as long as they're promoting it, the demon has no reason to torment them or torture them because they're doing their job for the demon. At the end of life, when the demon's done with them and there's no more use for that person, they turn on them. And so sometimes those people come in at the end of life having served this thing and they'll say, I thought it was my friend all these years, and it turns out it's not. These demons and the, and Satan, where, where do they hang out? I mean, they hang out all around us, I suppose. Right. So Scripture's real clear about that. They were cast down to earth to roam here until the end of time when they're judged. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the reference that he's a roaring lion that roams about the earth seeking who he can devour spiritually. Um, this idea that he's in hell is, is not actually accurate. It's kind of a, a vague reference to the, to the Judaic idea of Gehenna. Um, and Hades, which was more of a Greek idea. So it was a mix of those that, that people get confused about. But the revelation from Jesus onward is very clear that they're on earth and their job, their ordinary job. And by the way, John, it's critical for anybody listening to our conversation. All these activities have to be allowed by God. He's not running free like a monster, just knocking people over and doing whatever he wants. You don't need to be terrified that he's just going to randomly come get you. Um, if you read the book of Job in the Bible, it spells it out very clearly. He needs to go to the throne of God and get permission for everything that he does. So all these demons are on a leash and Jesus has the leash. So it's not that Jesus is mean and he wants us to be afflicted by them, but he respects our free will and the demon serves a purpose. And that purpose is primarily to tempt us which gives us the spiritual struggle, which makes us stronger and makes us mature. 
So if you think about it, if you were never tempted, if you were never tested, you would never learn the spiritual lessons about what the meaning of these choices, God or sin, self or other. You would never really understand the meaning of those choices if you don't fall down and scrape your knee and get up and learn a lesson from that. And so the demon is there to tempt us primarily, and, and he needs to be on earth and roaming around us to do that. And then the secondary, the extraordinary activity, when we open the door to him, we do these things with the occult or black magic, and we invite that relationship, God then allows us to have that corrective emotional experience of, oh my God, that thing's a monster. I thought I was playing with a friend. And, because, and then God allows that, not because he wants us to suffer, but he wants us to realize what we're embracing so that we turn away from it and come back to God. So exorcism is, is grabbing somebody who's about to fall off the cliff and yanking them back at the last moment. I, I think it's important to note that a lot of people who may visit a priest who is an exorcist may indeed have a mental illness, right? They're not oh. all possessed by the devil. They're not possessed by a spirit or an evil spirit. Oh, yeah, John, of course. At least 80% of the people that call in and I do intake interviews with, you know, and, and we maybe even go on to do a diagnostic prayer session, at least 80%, it's mental illness or misunderstanding. Um, the, the church is very cautious about saying, yes, you're possessed and moving on to those prayers, partly because you can do a lot of harm. So, and this is the danger of people out there that are self-proclaimed exorcists just running around telling people, oh yeah, you've got a demon, you know, that's, that's definitely a demonic problem. Because if, if, if you casually endorse that hypothesis and start, and start doing exorcisms or praying over somebody who's schizophrenic, well, I'm not going to take my medicine because now I know it's a demon. They told me so. And somebody can go off their medication the psychosis gets greater and there can be a tragedy. Like, so you have to be really careful about endorsing these ideas. When you look around the world today, um, war in Ukraine, financial problems, um, domestic problems, homicides, a drug epidemic, a loneliness epidemic. I mean, I could go on and on. Society uh, fragmenting, political polarization. What's your reaction to that as somebody of faith and who understands uh, a lot about good and bad in the world? Honestly, I just try to keep my head down and do what God has put in front of me. Hmm. Um, I know there's problems there. Uh, the danger, though, in focusing on them too much, you know, unless part of those problems is in your immediate life, of course, you've got to deal with it. Um, is that you can get very depressed and apocalyptic. And, and just about every generation has thought they're in the end times. And by going down that road, um, you can do a lot of destruction to your own life. You know, you stop being reasonable and stop appropriately living and planning and, and doing what you need to be doing. Um, I think that I think probably the, the more balanced approach is to keep your life, your spiritual life in order. And it, if it is the end times, you're ready for it. But if it's not, you know, keep going. You know, the, the old funny Russian proverb is, you know, trust in God, but row for sure. <laughs> Say that last part. Trust in God, but row for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, basically, I just try to, to keep living and, and doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing. 
the name of your book is The Exorcism Files, True Stories of Demonic Possession. So you're going to have cases you're going to describe in the book? Yeah. So the goal there is instead of saying, don't do this, don't do that, which, you know, people don't like to hear that. None of us do. Um, I'm trying to share stories that are, have an instructive value. So here's, here's a situation. Let me tell you the story of what happened what led up to the problem and then what happened afterwards so that you can see instead of me just wagging my finger and saying, I know better, you shouldn't do this. I'll say, well, here's an example of somebody who got involved in witchcraft. Here's exactly what happened. And here's what they experienced as an outcome. And, and likewise for a bunch of other things. So the, the goal there isn't to scare people or tell gross stories, but to tell real stories that hopefully have a value. And it comes out in September. Uh, when you were writing that and in, during your work, you, and you brought it up earlier, you could get depressed thinking about the problems of the world. But in the profession you're in, does it ever get you down? Mm, not really. No, I, I think um, I try to not dwell on it. So when you're there, you pray your heart out. You, you, you give your, give everything you can to it. And that's very easy to do because of the circumstance you're in. But then I think it's healthy to walk away and do other things and try to have some balance. I certainly don't sit around reading about this all the time. Yeah. I try to have other interests and activities in life. I don't think it would be healthy to focus on this too much. Um, you know, and also I don't think God wants us to focus on just that part of the spiritual life. You know, I, I had an exorcist friend tell me something really great very early on in this, John. And he said, if, 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 your spirituality is like a hand and you just take one part of that hand and you overdevelop it and only focus on it, the hand becomes monstrous. And, and what he was saying was, if you just focus on exorcism and demonology, your spirituality becomes distorted and it actually is, becomes a bad thing. So you want to be balanced, study the saints, work on cars, which is what I like to do. I like to wrench on old cars to just, that's my vacation. You know, um, writing books is fun to keep the mind alert, but I don't think you should focus on this all the time. Balance in life is always good. If um, people who are listening this and it piques their imagination and attention and they may say, gosh, I have a friend who may have an issue with the demonic, who do they approach? Do they contact their local parish? Yeah, it's probably best to contact their local diocese that they live in. So um, the parish may or may not know who the expert is in that diocese. So sometimes the parish priest, he won't necessarily know if there's an exorcist in the diocese. He probably would, but he might not. Um, and the bishop may have friends in neighboring dioceses that help them out when they get cases that that parish priest may not know about. So the best thing to do is to figure out where your, your diocese central office is. That's usually called a pastoral center. And you can find their website, call them and say, hey, you know, I think this is going on. But, you know, something you said there, John, if it's a third party, if it's like a friend of mine I'm concerned about, really that friend is the one that needs to contact the church. We don't, we don't you know, we don't have somebody call us and say, well, I think so-and-so's possessed because I don't like how they're acting. Go to their house, hold them down and do an exorcism. We yeah. don't invade people's lives because a third party told us to. That wouldn't be at all ethical. So I would say, you know, encourage your friend to contact their spiritual leader first. If they're not Christian, their minister, um, whoever their spiritual leader is. And if they want to contact the Catholic Church, contact the central office. 
Well, Adam, you sound really busy. You're writing your books. Have you a lot of cases, demonic cases on your calendar coming up? I'm just curious to get a sense of that. We have four four major exorcisms going right now that we pray with every week. Um, plus, I do intakes on multiple cases every week. We have multiple house cases and oppression that are handled by our second exorcist. Um, yeah, so exorcisms aren't like in the movies. It's not one and done. It's um, typically around six months to two years of weekly sessions before it's over. And so having four cases is, is you know, that's a full that's a full afternoon. I can imagine. And, uh, well, people will be looking forward to read your book, which comes out in September. The name again is The Exorcism Files, True Stories of Demonic Possession. It's on paperback. Crisis Publications, Sophia Institute Press. I've really enjoyed having you on my show, Adam, and good luck. Oh, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to be here. God bless you. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.